Hey, Consume listeners, Jamie Lewis here. I've been wanting to try new formats for the podcast, and this sixth season, I changed things up a bit. Every guest this season is a person of color in the wine and food industry, and roughly half of the interviews are conducted by Justin Tribu, a young black winemaker with a talent for honesty and conversation. This is a temporary format. I'll be back to hosting all the episodes myself next season, but it feels like a really important change this time around. As much as I could, I wanted to facilitate real discussion, and Justin's input and guidance helped a lot with that. I would have had her do all 10 episodes, but she was in the throes of harvest. So for what she was able to contribute, I'm very grateful. You may want to hear my interview with Justin first and listen on from there. Oh, and yeah, we're on Zoom again for these episodes. In any case, thank you so much for listening and happy sixth season of Consumed. Consumed is sponsored by my friends at Slow Life Magazine, for whom I write the food column. For the 2020 October-November issue, I'm writing about ribs in Slow County, and I included the Rib Line in Grover Beach, G Brothers in San Luis Obispo, and Miss Odette's Creole Kitchen in Paso Robles. It's been a sticky week around here, let me tell you, but I'm putting the finishing touches on the article now. If you live in San Luis Obispo or Avila Beach, check your mailbox for Slow Life Magazine every other month. And if you don't already get it, subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. Consumed is also supported by James Onaveros at Ranchos de Onaveros Wine in the Santa Maria Valley. If you haven't already listened to my episode with James in season one, I'll tell you, he's a ninth generation agriculturalist with roots that go back to when California was governed by Spain. His ancestors had this massive land grant and it was sold off in pieces until there was nothing left but he and his parents worked hard to buy back a parcel that overlooks the land that used to be their family's, and James planted his Pinot Noir vineyard there with his own two hands at the tender age of 23. I think one of the craziest things about James is that his last name, Onaveros, means the one true vine. The coolest part of his story, though, is that the wine is absolutely beautiful, with a very Burgundian style and influence. Taste that storyline for yourself by visiting the station in Los Alamos, where Ranchos de Onaveros wines are sold, along with elevated Santa Maria-style cuisine from Chef Conrad Gonzalez. For more information, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com or thestationlosalamos.com. Anita Sahi owns and operates Copia Winery in Paso Robles with her husband, Verinder Sahi. Their focus is Rhone varietal wines, but Anita wasn't always on the wine path. She grew up in a suburb of Chicago, the child of Indian immigrants with an interest in theater and later broadcast journalism. But she wound up working in high-end restaurants in New York, managing wine lists that had 300 bottles of Chateauneuf du Pop alone, and eventually owning her own place in Brooklyn's Park Slope neighborhood. But a 12-hour first date with Verinder included eight hours of talking about wine and led to a wedding and a big move to California. Today, they own Copia Winery, as well as the Sahi Vineyard, which has a very cool story with roots in Punjab, Pakistan. Listen to her conversation with guest host Justin Trebu, in which they discuss abundance, assimilation, being the oldest harvest interns in Paso Robles, and feeling like her family never really melted into the melting pot. Here's Justin's talk with Anita Sahi. Welcome, Anita. Hey, Justin. Good to see you. Good to see you. 
So, Anita, let's start off with a little bit of background on yourself. Where did you grow up? I grew up in this uh, really small town called Romeoville, Illinois. It's a southwest okay. suburb of Chicago. I was born and raised uh, basically in this tiny, tiny suburb. Um, talking about the 80s uh, is when I spent most of my time there. Really uh, kind of an interesting place to, to grow up. Um, it was a neighborhood that was just becoming diverse back then in the yeah. early, in the early eighties. Um, kind of a cool time to be in the neighborhood, but, but definitely, um, I, I was the only Indian American growing up probably in all of Romeoville. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. When did you first start seeing people that looked like you outside of Romeoville? Um, I think that had to be college. Oh. Uh, I went, I went to school, uh, at Northwestern University, which is northern suburb of Chicago. I was yeah. studying broadcast journalism. So I saw a few more people that looked like me, but again, none that were really studying journalism. Maybe one other. Right. Person. I seem to keep picking these careers where there's nobody else, uh, like me. <laughs> I feel you on that, Anita. <laughs> yeah. So. Tell me a little bit more about your family. What are your parents like? And did you have siblings? I I do have siblings. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Um, my parents moved to this country from Karachi, Pakistan. And this is the early 70s when they migrated here. Uh, first my dad and then my mom followed a year later. And they, they pretty much settled in Chicago uh, in the city back then. Very... Um, you know, it's a very, very difficult time uh, for them. They were both college educated, um, probably had hopes of becoming professionals. But unfortunately, at that time and for a long time before and after uh, that area of Pakistan and all of Pakistan really is was very tumultuous. Um, yeah. And there just weren't the opportunities presented to, uh, or available for them. So they had to make the tough choice to to get up and, and leave everything they knew and, and move to a place where they could make their way. And I really um, I really credit them with a lot, um, with a lot of who I am, because to get up and, and, and kind of leave everything you know and start from zero, like literally zero. You know, the story that everybody's, uh, maybe everybody's parents or grandparents tell them like, oh, I came and there was you know, a dollar in my pocket and I had a, the shirt on my yeah. back. Like that stuff is actually true for some people. Yes, it so, is. So uh, my dad had, I think the equivalent of $11 and, you know, maybe one pot and one change of clothes. And he had landed, so to speak, in the early 70s, 1971 in Chicago. And he didn't even know where he was going to go. He just knew that wherever he went, he had to make the most of it, find the opportunities, get some money, bring his new bride uh, here and, and start a new life. They, they went on to, to do that. You know, they, they basically uh, took jobs that, you know, paid $2 an hour to department store jobs. My mom was um, a literature and psychology major in college. And my dad graduated in with a degree in commerce, um, but they had to get, whole new education here, which took yeah. several years to earn the money to, to do. So they were strong, strong people. They had that spirit of get up and go and uh, really to make a better life, not only for themselves, but for my 
my brothers and I. Now I was the first child actually born in the U.S. in Chicago. All right. Yeah, I love it. So do you talk with your siblings a lot about um, Pakistan and all the things that, that was that were there and all that all that you've learned in Illinois? Yeah, uh, we talk a lot about it. Not only do we talk about it, we kind of lived it. You know, when you, um, and I'm sure this is true of many, many cultures, especially those that have first generation, uh, Americans like myself. Um, the culture that you grow up in is sort of this hybrid culture. You know, you sort of become your parents, um, student, but also their teacher. Because you're now growing up in a place that is not as familiar to them, but you are having handed the opportunity to kind of be part of two cultures. Teaching and, them, yeah. Yeah. And for my, and when you grow up in, um, in a Pakistani or Indian household, culture is, is very prevalent for the most part. Obviously not true for everybody, but for us, it, I mean, it was, it was all over the place. I mean, there's no questioning that we were Indian kids. Yeah. <laughs> when we went to school, we were eating. Uh, this was very embarrassing for me at the time. Now I think it's cool. We were eating, you know, green chutney sandwiches. Oh, on, delicious. On Wonder Bread. I mean, I guess the Wonder Bread was like super Americana. But other than that, everyone's like, ew, your sandwich is green. And I was like, it's really delicious. But yeah, it is green. <laughs> and, and, you know, I also what was really interesting about my childhood is that my parents were born in Pakistan, but my dad was born in 47, which is the year of the partition of Pakistan okay. and India. So they were kind of in Pakistan by default, really. Dad was Hindu and his heritage is more Western India or Gujarati. And my mom is a religion called Zoroastrian, which is Persian in root. So I am not only like a mix of American and Pakistani or American and Indian, but a mix of religions, a mix of like different, different things. So our childhood was very interesting for that reason alone. Yes. Growing up in Chicago, I think was really tough for my older brother. Um, you know, he was, uh, he had a lot of rough experiences in his early uh, childhood, going to school in Chicago, not looking like the, the other folks there. You, you know, it was, it was kind of a traumatic, uh, and, and character building, yes. uh, experience for him. And for me too, you know, I had a little bit easier because times were a little bit later, but right. yeah, for, for sure we, we faced a lot of discrimination because of the way we looked or because of the way our parents looked or talked, which was distinctly different than. Yeah people that that were born here so it's character building though what are some of your most influential childhood experiences both positive and negative and how have they really affected who you are as a person today i think um when i think of my childhood and, and this really does affect who i am today a lot of my experiences this is true of verinder too a lot of our experiences surround food we are we are a food culture uh, in terms of what we what we eat, how we prepare it, where it grows, what types of ingredients, what types of spices. So a lot of my memories involve food. And my favorite experiences are 
I think for, for my family, when I was growing up, it was very busy because my parents both held jobs. They had odd hours in terms of when they worked. So for, for a few years, my dad would come home and my mom would leave. And there was a lot of years like that. We were latchkey kids. So Sundays were like really fun for us. Yes. Those were the days that we were all at home and my mom would prepare kind of what, what would be like a traditional meal for um western uh western part of india gujarati gujarati meal it would involve dal or lentils mm-hmm. um so we use a, a dal or a lentil called tur and uh that was more on the soupier side then we would have something called bath or chawal which is basmati rice um, yeah. served with it and then we would have a shak which is a vegetable stew, sort of more of a dryer. And that could include anything. It could be potatoes. It could be eggplant. It could be okra. It could be any vegetable under the sun prepared with certain spices. Main spices include turmeric and chili powder, cumin, coriander, just anything aromatic we put in our food. So it was, it's fond memory. And then she would make, uh, roti, which is Indian flatbread on her, on her, on her griddle. So that was a very traditional kind of like the full Gujarati meal that we would have on a Sunday. And then maybe we'd have a little bit of mango pulp, um, which is basically like a liquid, liquid form of mango, just fresh, okay. man- fresh mango pureed, um, at, with a little water added. And we would have a little bit of mango pulp for, for the dessert, so to speak. And it was really fun to to have these meals. And what was really even more fun is my mom didn't know how to cook a thing when she met my dad. Yeah, my dad dad actually taught her how to cook. And because she was uh, ended up being so good at it, she made a lot of American things and she made a lot of uh, Zoroastrian heritage food, too. But because she became so good at it, I never had the need to cook. So history repeated itself. And when I met Verinder, I... I knew more how to order food than to cook food. Yes. <laughs> uh, he, he taught, he ended up teaching me a lot and his mom ended up teaching me a lot. So now I love to cook along with the rest of the family. Food is always going to be the center of everything for us. It brings people together. And I count wine in that too. Wine yes. is a big part of that. Um, I didn't grow up with wine, but now I consider it just hand in hand with food. It, it is just the center of every family experience, every experience you have with your friends. So it's part of the reason why we're, we're doing what we do. Exactly. I love that. I love how close your family is. So during the weekdays when your parents were at work, who would do the majority of the cooking? Would um, your brother perhaps do it or would y'all eat other things? My mom would still do the majority of all the cooking. Okay. And th- thankfully, because when my dad cooked, even though he taught her how to cook, he... I mean, he was like a little heavy handed with the spices. <laughs> so yes. we, we would prefer my mom to do all of the cooking, but she did everything. I mean, she was like the modern mom that just figured stuff out. I mean, she know, she learned how to make things like that we liked as American kids. You know, she made, she learned how to make lasagna, but obviously that lasagna had Indian spice vegetables in it. So it was a little different. And she learned how to make pasta dishes and other, other, you know, American classics, mac and cheese. But then she also made Indian food. She had always set aside, like when we came home, there was never a time where it was like, uh oh, what are we going to eat? You know, right. was, she had always taken care of that. She always took care, 
to take care of us kids, no matter how busy or, or weird her schedule was. Yes. Did, um, did your parents talk with you a lot about the balancing of your culture? Like, you know, making sure to be fully, you know, enriched in your culture and your heritage as Pakistani, but also assimilating in the same ways into American cultures. What's really interesting, and, and I find it a little sad, is at that time, because of their own experiences coming to this country, obviously um, very, very discriminatory at the time that they moved to Chicago in the 70s for Pakistanis and for Indians, and you know, arguably it still is. Um, they found a value in making sure that their children assimilated into the culture. You know, even though when I was born and grew up in the house before I went to preschool, I did not even speak a word of English because they didn't in the house. From the time I went to school, they focused on two things. They said, number one, education. That is your ticket to anywhere. Yes. Um, and, and number two, don't forget who you are, but there's a time and a place when you can show that, when you can discuss that. Don't show that you're different. Um, it's a, it's so counter to how I am now. I mean, I don't, I don't really think about I'm different or I'm the same as anybody. I just am who I am and I am more who I am today than I was perhaps when I was, you know, an awkward preteen. You come into your own. (laughs) Yeah. You come into your, you come into your own, but I can appreciate where they came from, why they were saying that they wanted their children to have every opportunity. I understand that so much. Yes. Yeah, so talk a certain way or talk the way everybody else talks. So switch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's never black and white. It's never black and white. My mom spoke perfect English when she moved to this country because that was her major, uh, whether it be in Pakistan or not. She spoke perfect English. She herself assimilated pretty well. But, you know, there's this phrase that a lot of people used um, throughout the 80s and 90s, which was melting pot. And yeah. I never felt like we melted into anything. Maybe we were part of like a toss salad because we were still distinctly ourselves. Uh, we never melted into anything. It was impossible because the, our culture is so pervasive and yes. we're very proud of it. Um, so even though they, they focused on education and making sure that you get every opportunity that the person next to you gets, they still did make sure that we didn't forget who we were. I mean, we had a lot of people, a lot of friends that look like us that that surrounded me as I was growing. I was born into this group of friends that they are still a part of and their kid I grew up with those kids. They're all yes. Indian. Yeah, they're all Indian American. They all live all over the place. They all do numerous things for their careers. So we did have that circle of like support, I'll yes. call it, um, within within the Indian community and that always that was always pervasive. But at the same time, I knew that I had to be smart, um, quote unquote, about how I proceeded through life if I wanted to do what I wanted to do and if I wanted the same opportunities that everybody else had. Yes. Yes. I love that your parents have always been supportive of your goals. When did you realize that you wanted to go into journalism? What was that thing that made you want to do that? And then we'll get into some wine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're already into some wine. (laughs) Uh, Well, when I, I always loved writing. In fact, Um, it's still a goal of mine to write something one day, like a complete work. Um, 
and I love, I love writing. I do a lot of, uh, copias marketing and writing because I really enjoy the, the written word and the You write the wine specs? I do. Oh, they're yeah. so fun. Yes. You know, I went all up and down your page. Your oh, thank you. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you. That's my outlet now. Um, and I don't mind ever talking about wine. Um, but yeah, written and spoken word, anything creative, I love. I've always had a knack for that. I think I probably get that from my, a little bit from my mom because she's very well-spoken and a lot from my dad. He is very artistic. He loved to paint and to write when he was younger. And I think I kind of picked that up. I would write books and like sign my name all over the place when I was little, like uh, written by Anita, written by Anita. <laughs> I just knew, I felt like I had, I always had to like, I love storytelling. So that was kind of where that was born of, you know, I was the editor of my senior paper in high school. I was a little bit of a theater brat too. I loved theater. So I loved performance arts, kind of putting those two together. It cut, it drew me to broadcast journalism. I was a little bit of a news junkie as well. So I, at that time, it, as supportive as my parents are, are and, and were, journalism was not like an okay thing to go into as an, a young Indian American the careers that were presented to us as acceptable careers were maybe medicine, right? Engineering, right? Or if you really couldn't choose one of those two preferred careers, perhaps computer science, which was a thing then. And I, I just, right, I was, I, yes, I was good at, at a, a few of those things, but it just didn't. It wasn't speak. you. It's yeah, well, it wasn't me. Um, so I, at that time, said I'm going to apply to two things. I really enjoyed art. And I really enjoyed writing and I applied two places, got into both and then chose journalism simply because it was probably the more stable of the two. And I chose to focus in broadcast journalism because again, I love the spoken word. I love the, the nature of storytelling and of oral story tradition. Nice. So I thought this was something that was a good fit for me. And I really enjoyed it. I did that for a couple of years after college. Um, and then life took a, a little bit of a different turn after that. Yes. I, uh, I was working, I worked at NBC in Pittsburgh for a time. And then I worked at a local cable access station in Chicago in my hometown. And I started to follow around the food reporter. Um, and I, I started to watch all of his stories, see all the places he would go, what he was doing. And my love of food came through and I, I, I literally got sucked in. I said, how do I do that? Yes. And the way that my mind works, the inquisitive nature of it is that I need to find out everything. I just need to find out everything about this, this industry. And as I was doing that, which at that time was watching early days of Food Network with Emerald Lagasse. Rachel Ray, bam. Yeah. And Rachel, (laughs) Rachel Ray is new generation. I'm like the one before that. But yeah, she came later. And okay. So there's a lot, there was a lot of, yeah, Bobby Flay was there at that time. Bobby Flay <laughs> I still love Emeril Lagasse. Yeah. So all these like superstars of food, which of course we know that Food Network is just a little microcosm of what the restaurant business and, and food is yes, all about. Of course. But that was my way of kind of getting educated. But- then I, then I said, well, that is clearly TV. I've got to learn how it really <laughs> works. So I took a leap. I started again. I, I started over and I moved into the restaurant industry. I got paid $7 an hour to be a pastry cook at a Latin restaurant in Chicago in the Wicker Park neighborhood. 
And that was the beginning of what was a 14-year career in restaurants where I did everything from work in that basement to making, you know, daily batches of flan and creme brulee to eventually owning my own place in Brooklyn, New York. So I moved from Chicago to the East Coast for my restaurant days. It was, and it was a blast. Oh, New York City. I love it. What was the name of your restaurant? It's called Benchmark and it's in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn. Nice. It was, it was amazing. That was the first wine list that, um, that I really got excited about because we were always, uh, searching for, you know, the next, uh, great discovery. And that's still a fun thing for, for me. And the reason that I, uh, I really fell into the world of wine is because of New York City. Um, it's because of the people I worked with. Um, I mean, my restaurant experience in Chicago started that. It planted the seed, so to speak. Then I worked with Michelin-level restaurants in New York City. I was a marketing uh, associate for a group in New York called Myriad Restaurant Group. That's mm-hmm. the group that manages Tribeca Grill, Nobu Restaurants, and a restaurant called Corton, which I helped to open with um, the restaurateur Drew Porent and Chef Paul Lee Brandt. That was my wine education, yes. you know, for a 20-something person. Yes. I could not fathom trying or affording the types of wines that I now had my fingers in. It was amazing, amazing to, you know, be, have access to this cellar that was 20,000 bottles deep, you know, like 1400 different selections. And the fun part about it was there were 300 or 350 Chateauneuf du Pop by the bottle on that wine list. I didn't know it at that time, but the seed was being planted again for love of her own varietals. So that all those things kind of led up to my, my obsession, I'll call it with wine. How did you meet Berinder? I met Berinder. Um, so this is now, let me think about the time frame. 2014, I, left New York and came back to my hometown. I was missing Chicago a bit. And I met Verinder in early part of 2015, which uh, was basically an online meetup. We met online. I was giving, trying my hand at online dating, which I was failing miserably at, just to be truthful. It was terrible. It's hard. It's hard out there. (laughs) (laughs) But and I was like, I was like this close, very, very close to just calling it quits and just saying, you know what? I'm going to try the old fashioned way. This is, this is for the birds. And at the last minute of me, and this is really true at the last minute of me, like cutting off my profile online, this guy messages me. He says, Oh, I'm a, I'm a professional. I really, really love wine. I didn't really read any further. I was like, sure, let's talk. Let's talk. <laughs> Hello, wine buddy. Hello, wine buddy. And that was, and that was, that was that, you know, we met and we had a epic, um, 12 hour date on the first time we met. And about, you know, eight hours of it was discussing wine and future dreams and what, what we were thinking at, and even at that point in time, I, I didn't have any notion that I would be in the wine making world. I just thought, what a cool thing that this guy has such a uh, a love and a passion for wine from all angles because he was in the process of getting his winemaking certification from UC Davis. 
He was just embarking on planting a vineyard um, in in the Central Valley in Lodi with his brother. Yes. And I, I was like, well, this this is very unique because he's also of Indian heritage. And yeah. I, it's neither here nor there, but you don't meet very many of us. So it was it was intriguing and it was like a lightning strike moment. It was just yeah. one of those things like where we hit it off and, and we haven't looked back since. My heart be still. That's great. Hey there, a quick interlude to talk about another one of my supporters. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality products and exceptional customer service. Community-owned Slow Food Co-op buys from local producers, ensuring that they offer their customers real and sustainable food. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and environmentally sustainable packaging. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Tell me more about Verinder's Vineyard. Is that Sahi Vineyard? Yeah, Sahi Vineyard, Sahi, which is our last name. Yeah. Um, he, the, that's a very fun uh, story. It, it basically came from the concept of land for land. Um, Brinder and his brother sit in there. They have, there's three siblings. He's got a brother and a sister. Their dad wa- was traveling back to India to manage their ancestral land. Um, and there wasn't much being done with it. Uh, he just kept traveling back to maintain it, collect rents, you know, it was being leased out. And, and the brothers and the sister said, you know, we're, dad, we're really worried about you. We don't want you to keep going back and you're, you're getting up there in years. There's no point. We're not going to move there and live now that we live here. Why don't we just sell that? Why don't we just sell that plot? And dad said very wisely, I, I should say, well, okay, I agree with you. I'll listen to my kids. I, you guys make a lot of sense. But on one condition, I'll sell this land that all of the money from this sale goes into another piece of land. Yes. Getting this money. This is going in. It's yes. going to another piece of land. The reason why that's so important is because Verinder and his family come from a state in India called Punjab. Uh, Punjab is a northwest state, kind of foothills of the Himalayas area. It's the breadbasket of India. It's where all the crops are grown, um, a very fertile part. And so farming is in their blood, literally, for generations. And and they just hadn't done that much in, in modern day in India. It was impossible. So to get back to that was something that was very, very important to them. So Sahi Vineyards is, is a 20-acre property in uh, Lodi, and they grow uh, exclusively Petite Syrah. And these grapes, we don't really make a whole lot of wine with them. We sell those grapes. And so it's kind of a self-sustaining property where the grapes are grown and it sustains a property and they're sold. So yeah, it's fun. So how did y'all make your way out to Paso Robles? Because when I first met you, um, it was at the Paso Underground. Yes, right. We were pouring next to each yes. other. Yeah. <laughs> what a, I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine. It has been a whirlwind. Um, it, it literally has been a whirlwind. So in 2015, Verinder and I met. And at the end of that year is when he turned to me and said, 
oh, hey, I have this trip um, that we're taking for as part of the winemaking certification. It's just an added benefit. Do you want to come? It's a it's a this place called Paso Robles. Uh, at that time, we said Paso Robles because we didn't know as locals that people call it Paso Robles. Oh, yeah. The incorrect, correct way of saying exactly. <laughs> Paso Robles. And uh, he said, do you want to come? Do you want to come with me? And I said, wine trip? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll come. Yes. I just, I, you know, I took a course with UC Davis just for fun while he was taking it. I, I already, my interest in wine was already peaked many, many years before that. So we came here in December of 2015. It was supposed to be a technical tour of uh, 11 wineries where you spend like an hour or even two hours at each place and you tour their winemaking facility. You might get to try some of their wine. You talk to their winemaker. You talk to their vineyard manager. And again, I use that phrase lightning strike moment, like when Verinder and I met, I'll use it again. Because when we came to Paso, that was it. Uh, we saw the people, the land. We tried the wine. We were wondering where the heck Paso was all these years for us because it wasn't on our personal maps. Right. Of course, we knew of the bigger labels that came from here, but we did not know the richness of what was The community here. of Paso. Yeah, the community of it. Paso. What was happening? So that that trip kind of, we, we didn't know it at that moment, but it solidified things for us. As we were visiting all these places, one kind of stood out to, to us, one or two. And we, it was the only place that we didn't get to try wine. Um, and it was a place where they had the most audacious sort of outspoken winemaker. And that was Booker Vineyards um, and winemaker Eric Jensen. He, I don't think he was even expecting us. He was kind of wondering why 20 people were standing on his crush pad. <laughs> And hey. show, yeah, like, hey, what, who <laughs> are you? And, you know, his tasting room uh, manager at that time had to whisper to him like, oh, yeah, remember, these are those students that, yeah, we agreed to do this. It's like, oh, and his first word or first words out of his mouth were like, yeah, this um, education is a waste of time. <laughs> you should. And he's saying this to a group of students. <laughs> <laughs> and you should, you, you know, if you want to get into this, you need to really know what it's all about. And then he spent um, the better part of an hour just totally candid, the most valuable speech of that whole trip, because he was honest. He was blunt. It kind of took me back to my New York days. I was like, no, yes. I can I can understand, you know, yes, people in New York aren't rude. They're just blunt. Exactly. Um, I'm from D.C. I feel that they're to the point. Um which which I appreciate. And that's what he was. But he talked like this big, big game, you know, and, and he was really, really thought highly of himself, too, <laughs> which I guess one should uh, if you're if you're playing at the level that he plays, you know, and and I was, you know, we came back. After the whole tour was over, Verinder and I parked outside the gates, so to speak, of Booker because appointments are necessary to taste there. And uh, we called right from the car and we said, hey, uh, yeah, we were part of that group and we would like to come and, and try some wine. Could we? The Chelsea, the tasting room manager said, yeah, sure. Come on in. And we tried the wine. It floored us. It was amazing. And we knew that, OK, if if we are really thinking about getting into this, if we are really going to do this, then we should learn from somebody who makes wine like this? Yes, um, because this is wine that I could drink 
any day of the week and I would die happy. Um, and, and as we were walking out, a lot of weird faded things happened in 2015 for me and for Verinder. As we were walking out of that tasting room, uh, Eric was walking in. He goes, Hey, I remember you guys. We did, then we did the hard sell. We were like, Hey, um, yeah, I know we're older and we're just part of this tour, but we want to come work for you next year. And he, he looked at us like kind of sideways and he was like, what do you mean? You're like, <laughs> you are, yeah, you are older. You ha- are probably professionals. Like this is really, really hard work. And I don't, you know, like, you got to do a lot of cleaning. You got, you're going to, it's sweaty and dirty and like, you, can't, you guys can't do that. And I, you know, we did the hard sell. I was like, we're not afraid of hard work. I work in the restaurant industry. Both Verinder and I have started from, you know, zero and worked our way up in whatever industry we've chosen to work in. And we'll do the same here. And you just, you need to work with us. Yeah. I think he was like half, half like, yeah, I think they're drunk. Maybe they won't come back. But he told us, he was like, okay, yeah, okay. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, call me closer to the time. So I wrote him an email. I called him closer to time and he did. He invited us, but he was a man of his word. He invited us back in 2016 and we became Booker Vineyards 2016 Harvest Interns, two nice. oldest, oldest interns in Paso, but it, oh. it worked out, worked out well. And we, we really thank him for that opportunity. It's, he's a mentor of ours. So what do you think sustainability is? Not just in the natural wine sense, but in the vineyard workers, in the way production workers are treated, vineyard practices, sustainability, biodynamics. You know, wine is an agricultural product, not just a luxury one. It's true. Um, and, and when you get into the wine business on the vineyard side and on the winery side, you realize that this is most definitely an agricultural product. It's kind of, I relate it to my restaurant experience because the front of the house or the servers and the host and the theater of, of dining is only one side of it. All you have to do is lift the curtain to the back to see what it's really about. And it, it's beautiful. It's brutal. It's hard work. It's blood, sweat, tears, and all of that. And it takes a lot of man hours um, yeah. and woman hours to yeah, go into right. into one bottle. Um, what I'm drinking today is uh, it's, it's actually not a released uh, wine. It's our 2018, the story it's our Grenache driven blend. It's going to be released next year. Okay. Um, but we, Verinder and I love opening bottles, you know, especially after bottling, you know, every, every couple of weeks just to see how they're developing. We use that as an excuse anyway. But this one, this one is 97% Grenache and just 3% Syrah. It's all sourced from Jesperson Ranch in Edna Valley. And, uh, as, as, as far as sustainability goes, we'd love to work with farmers and with one, uh, with vineyard managers that really pay attention to sustainability, organic when possible, deficit irrigation when possible, not using pesticides. And in terms of the man hours, I mean, we, we really appreciated the way that that property was farmed. Um, and it was, uh, it's, it's farmed by the same group that we in fact hired for our own vineyard now, because we really appreciate their sentiment, the style, the way they treat their workers. I feel like it is, as you say, sustainable all around and it takes into account the hard work and the people that go behind this sort of a product. 
but you're when I when you when you ask that question, it also makes me think how how many people may not realize that um, we you know I, I'm not going to because because the tone of what we're talking about is is diversity and and is people of color in, in this industry. Yes. I did have this experience when it came to talking about developing a vineyard, which, which we are doing now. We're one year in and it was, it take, it took me back. It took, it, I, I was taken aback by it. You know, somebody had made a comment, somebody who, who is not in the industry, but perhaps is aware of that this is an integral industry in Paso Robles and, and the central coast. Um, it said, you know, you guys should really think, you guys should think really twice about doing what you're doing and planting um, a vineyard. It's irresponsible. And I was wondering why, why would it be irresponsible? I was expecting something in terms of like water usage or something environmental perhaps. But this gentleman's uh, comment was that it's irresponsible because you are not paying a livable wage to workers who farm land. And what happens then is that they overcrowd our schools and they're living inappropriately, 10 people to one apartment, and they overcrowd our schools and are pushing out our kids. Um, and I, you know, it was a very colored comment. I mean, yes, it's quite obvious. Yeah, it's very obvious what this gentleman was, was getting at. Uh, yes. And I, I had to be polite um, because this particular person was in a position of power. Yes, um, and I felt that. And I and but I did kindly say, "Well, our kids are the kids that live here, right? So they live here, so they're all our kids." Yes, and um, I guess that's more of a conversation on the on on the school system than it is on underpaying workers and livable yes. wage. I don't think you actually know what we pay our workers. So it was, it was, it it was, it took me back. Um, And that was, Paso is a wonderful place. I think that was one of the only things where I have just been like, wow, it's there. It's definitely there. Those preconceived notions. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So let's talk more about your vines that you planted in 2019. What was the favorite part about that process? Because you, like you said, Miranda, it comes from a farming heritage. Yeah. I mean, number one, it was awesome to see the Sahi family get back to their roots to work with the land and in such a big way. We, um, we have 50 acres, two adjoining parcels, and we first acquired the parcel where our home is and where we live. And there's a few vines around the home. And then we have another adjoining 25 acre parcel where we planted more vines. That the most, uh, I think the most, uh, memorable thing about the day we put the first vines in the ground, uh, was that we invited, uh, Verinder's parents, his mom and dad and, and the owners, the previous owners of that neighboring parcel, Bob and Jane Holly. They are a couple in their seventies and they had dreams actually of planting that land. And then, uh, you know, a personal tragedy struck and they never got to it. So we really felt um, attached to their story and, and appreciated that they shared it with us and appreciated that they decided that we were 
okay to be the stewards of that land yes. um, because they didn't sell it. It wasn't for sale. We approached them and said, what, what do you think if we develop this land? Would you, would you consider uh, bringing it as part of this property? And they we wanted to meet us. They wanted to know that we were going to do the right things and they approved and it, it meant a lot. So we kind of think of them as a second mom and dad. Yes. Um, we, we invited them and, and Verinder's parents and we had Verinder's parents plant the first vines on this side, on, on the home side, because home is where the heart is and the heart is the family. And then on the other side, the adjoining parcel, we had the Hollies plant the first plants that, which is kind of Kind of bringing it home, I think. You know, they had a dream of planting, and they, in fact, put the first plants in the ground on on their side. So that was my favorite and most memorable part of that experience. Now it's it's seeing all of the babies coming out of the ground, one year old. It's fun to see the different characteristics of that Syrah block versus this Grenache block versus a Mervedra block. It, it's <laughs> fascinating. So Verinder um, works with um, our, our vineyard manager as well as our winemaking consultant, who's Pete Tyrone, who's one of the winemakers at Booker Vineyard. Oh, great. Um, yeah. yeah, we work we work with Pete and we love him. And they've worked together to kind of create this diverse vineyard with a variety of rootstocks and clones and planting styles. So we have head trained. We have... Uh, vertical shoot. We have meter by meter, really dense plantings, all, which have to be hand farmed as well as hand harvested. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be yeah. a fun, fun experience. So tell me about your tasting room. Where is it located? Is it connected to the winery? Um, our tasting room is located in downtown Paso Robles. It's on 13th Street, um, kind of in the heart of Paso and Restaurant Row in that area. It is not connected to the winery, but what's exciting is that we have a tasting room and a winery in the works on the property. It's okay. a state of the art facility. We're hoping that we can start construction within a year. And in the meantime, we love introducing our brand through our downtown tasting room. And we make our wine at Denner Vineyard, which is another amazing vineyard on the west side of Paso. We basically share the space with the winemakers at Dennard and we do all of our work there. Fabulous. Dennard is such a beautiful facility. It is gorgeous. So how has COVID affected Copia? You said you have an outdoor tasting room in downtown. I know I've been there. I was, um, I know you also opened up your vineyard area. How has that been so far? It's been great because the vines are a year old. We really enjoy inviting people here to kind of tour and see where we've planted, uh, where we've planted the blocks. It really brings the experience home. I think, uh, people can see that we are a small crew. You know, it's, it's basically the, a couple of, uh, gals that we have in the tasting room, Sarah and Taylor. And then we have our vineyard helper, Freddie. Verinder and myself. And yeah. we, we do everything here. So it, it's a way to really humanizes what the brand is all about. Copia means abundance, basically. And we are just full of the passion for the farming and the winemaking and also the people that we're bringing to the table. Each and every member of our team is somebody that we have handpicked and that is kind of growing with us. 
It is very much a family. So having people tour the vineyard has been a really wonderful way to show all that Copia is. And, and they, they seem to enjoy it. But I will say that the downtown tasting room is, it's so cool. I mean, you're in the middle of everything in Paso. And I think it's pleasantly surprising because a lot of people aren't aware of all the diversity that there is downtown, whether yes. it be the new restaurants that are cropping up, the cocktail lounges, as well as the wine tasting rooms. Yes. So what's been one of the scariest parts of chasing this dream and this now reality? I'd like to say nothing because I'm I'm fearless. Yeah. (laughs) But really everything. (laughs) If you're not scared, then you're doing something wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like everything is scary. It's a big, it's a big gamble. But I'll tell you, Verinder and I have separately and together have never, ever been afraid of taking a risk because without risk, there really is no reward. And we could have done a small project. We could have moved here. We could have hired a winemaker. You know, we could have just said, oh, we'll buy some fruit from, from a good vineyard and we'll just make a bin or two. But we have this problem of wanting to be the best. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we couldn't just do that. And, and it's the same amount of work, you know, to make mediocre wine as it is to make yes. good wine. Yes. So why not shoot for the best. And I have to say that that level of fear is healthy for us. It is. If we, if we aren't, if we, if there's not a little bit of anxiety or fear, then we're not pushing hard enough. That's our opinion. I love that. So how do you make space for yourself daily? Is there space? (laughs) (laughs) Before, before we, uh, before we started chatting, like, 30 minutes before I came here from the winery because harvest is starting early. Yes. I'll I'll tell you two things. We do take mo, we do take time in the morning, um, to be quiet, to think about not only what we have to do, but just to think about how grateful we are. I think it's really important uh, for anyone to just have a a bit of gratitude and, and to, to take a moment to say, yeah, we're in difficult times. This is an evolving time, but think about all the things you do have and, and think about where you want to be and, and it will manifest. It's very important for both of us to, to have that kind of a mindset. Some days are better than others, but right. it is, it's important for, for us to think that way. I love that. So I have a few more questions. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would tell my younger self to chill out, to not worry so much, to let things happen um, and not constantly uh, stress about controlling the narrative because some things you can control and oftentimes whatever's going to be is going to be no matter what. So just let things happen, embrace opportunities. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm doing that now for sure. Yes. Um, and then who would you say one of your biggest role models is? I would say that, you know, besides my parents for, for all the hard work that they did in, in moving to a new country when they knew nothing, um, I think my biggest role model had to be at my first major restaurant job. Um, and that is, uh, three people actually. They share that they share the seat. Grant, <laughs> uh, Grant and Joanna DePorter. 
and Beth Heller of Harry Carey's Restaurant Group in Chicago. I call them sort of like the hardest working people in show business. They taught me so much when I was a 20 nothing year old um, and just starting in the restaurant business. I was working in marketing and I didn't even know what that meant at the time. They gave me this sort of epic panel interview for two hours. I definitely thought I was not going to get that job, but they gave me a shot. And there were, again, there was nobody who looked like me there. There was nobody who had my background, so to speak, but they, they saw something in me and they took a shot and mm -hmm. it was the best opportunity of my life still to this day. Those people I will always thank, um, for giving me my start, um, in the professional world and, and the way that they taught me to work, the discipline that they had, the way that they continuously evolved in hospitality and with their excellence and their standards, I, I never could, I took that with me in, in every experience from that day forward. There's a little bit of Harry Carries in me in everything that I do. And they're still doing it. They're still doing it. And they became the first restaurant in Chicago, outside of California, anywhere that is buying copia wine for their restaurant. Woohoo! I love it. That's full circle. And then Jamie always finishes her consumed um, with this question. You knew today was your last day on earth. What would you eat and drink and with whom? I would eat, um, if it was my last day, I truly want to eat homegrown, homemade food, Indian food. Um, and I want, I want it made by my mom and I'd eat it with my family. I love that. Thank you, Anita. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for listening to Consumed. I'm grateful for all of your ears every single day. The podcast is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. I hope you'll support the businesses and people featured this season and come back for another season of Consumed this winter. Until then, take care. <laughs>